Well, good morning, everybody. I, I will start with a uh, confession of forgetfulness, uh, and it's my bad on all accounts. Uh, first, uh, I know it is a dangerous path already when a redhead chooses to wear a red shirt. Um, and then I forgot about the poinsettias. And so I'm like, there's a whole lot of red going on now for the rest of the service. And so I was telling Chris that, and he was like, oh, don't worry, um, because you can wear the stole, and that'll uh, separate you. And then that brings me to my second point of uh, what goes on here is, one, already with the poinsettias, um, I, I constantly get nervous that I'm going to uh, kick them over because I like to walk as close as I can to the edge of the stage. And now I'm just triple compounding it by tripping over these and then knocking them all over. So this may be a very exciting service, uh, but we, we shall see. Um, but what we are getting to do is we're getting to continue our Advent study, uh, now focusing in on peace after lighting the peace candle. Uh, and to do so, we're going to look at uh, one of the most familiar passages um, of the birth of Christ Christmas narrative, uh, and that is found in Luke chapter 2. But we are jumping into the middle of Luke 2. Um, we're not starting with the, uh, uh, actually, chapter 1. And so kind of to get us a good, you know, kind of recap of some of the context we've got to keep in mind, namely the purpose that Luke himself gives for writing this, um, there's a couple key things that we're going to need to remember about Luke. Uh, first, Luke is not a disciple. Um, he's a Gentile or a Greek, probably a, most likely a physician or a doctor. Um, this explains why he has really, really sharp Greek language skills. Um, he has a much bigger vocabulary than a lot of the other guys. Um, and then, but more importantly, Luke's account is not firsthand. Luke is writing this as a historian, um, and he's trying to write this to go back and fill in all the dates uh, and the details around the life of Christ, and he does so here in Luke, and then we'll know that he continues because he author, also authors the book of Acts in which he wants to proceed and, and uh, tell the narrative history of everything that follows after Jesus' death and resurrection. Um, but again, it's not firsthand. Um, he writes it to, the guy, to a guy named Theophilus, and really that just means a Greek name meaning lover of God, and whether that's a specific individual who carries this name, um, either his original name or he was renamed this, what we do know is we get Luke particularly interested, especially in Acts, with these God-fearing Gentiles, um, these Gentiles, these Greek um, kind of people who are still in respect or interested in the God of the Jews. And so Luke is a perfect category for this. He himself is a Greek convert, and he is writing this to Theophilus, and he states the purpose of the book in verse 4. He wants to encourage all his readers of the certainty of the gospel. He wants to point to Jesus as a truly authentic character and state how his gospel is one that is certain and is reliable and can be believed in. And so it's interesting because he starts off chapter 1 uh, not with the birth of Jesus. He actually starts off um, kind of talking about John the Baptist. And it's really interesting if you look all the way through chapter 1 uh, and the section of 2 and continuing the section of 2 that we won't get, together, uh, get to read together, he kind of jumps back and forth through kind of these parallel passages where it's like he first talks about uh, the angel uh, visiting John's dad, Zechariah, and prophesying about the birth of Jesus. And then he moves over and he talks about the angel who comes to Mary. Uh, and then Mary and Elizabeth actually meet. And we get this wonderful uh, psalm of praise that uh, Mary writes. Uh, and then we get the birth of John the Baptist. Um, and actually an interesting account that follows after that. Zechariah, when he hears from the Lord, he immediately goes mute. When the 
baby is born and he proclaims the name, his, his words are given back to him. And then he makes this fantastic kind of prophecy over the life of John the Baptist. And I wanted to conclude mainly with his late, his last kind of uh, statement about it in, in verse 79 of chapter 1, when he's saying what John the Baptist's purpose is, and he summarizes and says he's to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death and to guide our feet into the way of peace. I think it's very fitting. Uh, John the Baptist's his entire purpose is to proclaim the one who can come and give peace. He himself is not the peacemaker. Peace is not his to give, but he knows the one who is able to give this peace, and so he's going to proclaim him. And then Luke cleverly moves right off of that into the section of telling us about Jesus' birth. And uh, to do so, as we, can, as we uh, hear our reading of God's Word, the reciting of God's Word this morning, I'm going to invite you all to stand in reverency of it, and I'm actually going to invite Linus to share with us. That, that is indeed what Christmas is all about. Um, and that was what was constantly playing in my mind this whole week while preparing for the sermon. So I felt like I just needed to share that insight with you so we could all experience that together. Um, but there is something that I do want to make comment from that is because, again, like I stated, this is probably the most well-known uh, passages of the birth narrative. Um, and Charles Schultz makes it famous for us and has reminded it uh, in such a beautiful way. I remember it was, it was not until I was in college uh, that somebody pointed out um, the fact in the video when Linus gets to the, the angel's proclamation to fear not, he actually drops his comfort blanket, his security blanket, and embodies that no fear. And it's just a beautiful, again, Schultz in, in a great way of getting to picture, picture that for us. Um, but again, with the commonality of this and with the commonplace of this uh, passage, I also ran into something that I hope to share with you a little bit in this journey as well as we go through this passage where I felt like I got to the end of the application um, where I was seeing some of the responses towards this message and I was having a hard time putting myself into some of those feelings, some of those responses. And I think a lot of it was because I was probably so inoculated with this story and its details. It's the one we always read every Christmas. Um, the only reason we jump back to Matthew is to get the Magi, um, but it seems like Luke always gives all of these details because, again, he's the historian putting all these accounts together, so it makes sense why he's giving more details. Um, but with this, I know I needed this, this prayer, and I wanted to read uh, or pray this prayer and read it over you as well. 
Um, Father, I do pray this morning that you give us fresh eyes to see and fresh ears to hear this familiar passage. Lord, I pray that uh, what, we, what we see sometimes is maybe old and known. We ask that you open up our hearts again to its wonder. We, like Mary, we ask that you help us treasure these things. And like the shepherds, we ask that our right response will be to give you all glory and praise now and forever. Amen. So let's jump into the text and kind of break down a couple things and start this conversation. And we're actually going to do so, uh, Linus doesn't start in the beginning of chapter 2, but we're going to do so in verse 1, where Luke gives this birth narrative and sets the scene with a little bit of a historical context and really establishes or achieves three things. And we want to highlight those. Um, But let's look down in verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and when all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was in the house and lineage of David. And he was doing so to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Again, I think Luke accomplishes three things that are fascinating in this little um, quick, short verses of Jesus' birth. And the first is he establishes Jesus in the world history. He establishes Jesus with all his uh, cosmic significance and all of his place and grandeur. He establishes him here on earth with man as a man, God-man, but as a man being born. And this is the first thing he does. And this is going to be um, how it happens or how it's set up is going to be very similar um, for us as we're coming off of the book of Daniel. In fact, I'm going to reference Daniel a lot, um, mainly because I don't think if we were not preaching over Daniel, I wouldn't have made some of the connections uh, that I made in this. And my first connection comes straight from the narratives that we saw time and time of, of in Daniel, where we saw human forces enacting Human forces putting forth their will, but God as sovereign over them, orchestrating their choices to be the fulfillment of his will. So we saw that time and time again, Daniel. Now we see it again. We see it in these two characters that we're introduced to in the days of the decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria and all went out to be registered, each to his own town. These two human kings that are at play here um, that are orchestrating, it's not their, they're enacting their will, but God's sovereign will is enacting to a greater purpose over that. Um, We see them seeking out and putting out these decrees, and these decrees lead to the traveling of Joseph and Mary. But I will make a small comment and and at least give some assuredness uh, to those who um, perhaps will Google these these figures. Um, A quick Google account of any of these names um, will will result in a bunch of lists from various posts of either uh, atheist websites who want to say this is another um, significant thing of where the Bible misses a detail and how we can't um, rely on the Bible as a historical accuracy um, because we do have a little bit of issue that seems to be arisen at this wording and at this first glance um, over these characters. And this is what it is. 
And the first person we're introduced here is the Caesar Augustus. Um, originally, he was named Gaius Octavius, but in 27 BC, um, he was renamed Caesar Augustus, and that's when he began his rule. And so he begins his rule in 27 BC, continues it after the birth of Christ, well into then AD 14. So we get a large swath that happens here in Caesar Augustus. Then we're uh, introduced to Quirinius, and Quirinius has a very short rule, and his rule is, in fact, only from A.D. 6 to A.D. 7. Now, you may be thinking, well, that's not a big deal, right? Like, you said, you said Caesar, was, Caesar Augustus ruled all the way until A.D. 14, so this is well within that window that we can find these two in alignment. The issue comes when we go back to Matthew 2, and we learn about Herod, Herod the Great, who's involved in this as well. And Herod the Great starts a rule before Caesar Augustus, back in 37 B.C., but he actually dies in 4 B.C. And so we have that all three of these characters are supposed to play in together in the same timeline, but when we look at the timeline, this is roughly how it actually presents itself. It presents itself with this gap, and so if we can throw up the timeline... We have, this, we have Caesar kind of being the, the bridge between them, and then we have Herod the Great, and then we have this gap from 4 B.C. to A.D. 6 where Quirinius is involved. And so a lot of people want to look at this and do a couple things. First thing they want to do, uh, most part, is they want to discredit Luke, and they want to say Luke's not a valid historian, and we can't take his uh, account as reliable. Um, other people want to hold on to Luke and want to blame the other guy who's most significant in this, a historian named Josephus. And they want to say, well, Josephus is off and Luke is right. Um, And Josephus is the one who gives us the most detail about Quirinius and the census that happens there in AD 6. And so someone want to discredit him. um, But I actually don't necessarily think we have to discredit either one of these. Um, Some also want to solve this kind of uh, inconvenience by pointing to a possible second reign of Quirinius that happens earlier um, in BC 3 to 2. Um, but still, even if we accept that one, it's still not clear that it, the timeline solves itself. But rather, I think this one's just purely down to linguistics. I think it's a language issue um, that we have here. And it really comes from this word first, protos in Greek. Um, it's an antecedent word. And by first, it also just really means before that it happened before, that something was prior to. And so I think we could actually solve all this by simply reading, you have the decree in the time of Caesar Augustus, and then this was before the registration of Quirinius. Um, and then that, I think, solves our reading here. So it can still happen in a line that, uh, that moves through Caesar Augustus and Herod the Great, somewhere likely about 5 to 4 B.C. Um, is most traditionally accepted as the birth of Christ. Um, And then that is good because it happens before Quirinius. Um, And I I say this all in some technical details really just to give comfort um, because I think a a lot of times, again, when it comes to um, textual criticism of the Bible, when when people are just itching to tear this thing apart, um, and it really is more sound um, that we can rely on. And as one of the commentators said, and I was really comfortable by this, it may be a different account. It may be that first account. Over the last hundred years, we keep finding more and more archaeological uh, evidence that is discovered that aligns more and more with Scripture. So it may be that in 10 years they find something else that establishes Quirinius' first reign and puts this much more in line. Who knows? But what I would do want to say is I don't think we need to be lost in this, and I don't think our focus is, nearly, is merely on these men. I think these men are acting, but again, it is a sovereign God who is enacting His will um, despite them or at least through them, um, whatever the cause may be. And this is what is the result of these men's actions. Um, verse 3, 
And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. This is Luke's great second achievement. Um, He's already established uh, Christ as a a man, a, a real figure in human history. Now he's establishing Jesus as a qualified Messiah. There's two qualifications that he's specifically uh, emphasizing here. We know from Micah 5.2 that Jesus, the Messiah, Messiah must be born in Bethlehem. And then why Luke, I think, reiterates that not only Bethlehem is the city of David, but also that Joseph is from the house of David, the line of David, is because we also get from Isaiah 11 and from more specifically Jeremiah 23 that the Messiah will be born from the line of David. So what Luke's doing is Luke's establishing uh, Christ as a real figure and then establishing him as a qualified Messiah. And I think that's the main purpose for this repetition. But I do want to take a quick pause, again, probably because of Daniel's influence on me, um, and want to look at Joseph here for a second. Because I think Joseph plays an interesting role. um, Because Joseph, as Matthew describes him, he's an upright, he's a righteous man. And here we see him doing something very, very interesting, um, which is not only is he, he is one who puts himself forth to obey the law of God, he puts himself as one to obey the law of the land. That as long as the law of the land doesn't come in contrast with the law of God, he's going to put himself as a right kingdom citizen, obeying as an earthly citizen, citizen whenever those are in alignment. Because again, verse 3 is, is a little fascinating to me at first glance when I was going through this, because I'm like, why did they make him go back? That seems like such a hardship. Why didn't they just add a line on the form um, so that while they were there in Nazareth, he could say, yeah, this is me, this is my family, I live in Nazareth, and there's a little box that says, where did you come from? And he could just write Bethlehem and then be done with it. Like that seems like that would be much, much more simple, um, but that is actually, uh, would be contrary to the real purpose of the census. The real purpose of the census is a little different. It's not a, it's not a military census. They're not trying to find how many men that they can go to fight, because if it was a military census, two things would happen. One, Joseph would be as exempt as a Jew, and then two, Mary wouldn't be required to be a part of it either. And so it's not, it's not a military census, but why this census is in place is exactly for this clause. These governors want to force their people to travel. They want to create this mass traveling where everybody's having to go back to their hometown. And there's a clear reason that we understand when we relate it to our own traveling. Because whenever you have a vacation or you go on a big trip or you travel somewhere, you always start with a lot more of something than you finish with, which is Money. That's right. This is exactly right. Money. You start with more money than you finish with because when you travel, you spend. And that's what these guys were trying to do. This is an economic boost. The Romans are trying to put a a shot into the economy, boost it up, and so they're going to create the census, cause everybody to travel around, and thus spend money. And I think, again, this is fascinating read back into the person of Joseph. I think Joseph rightly could have said, well, the census really isn't about us because uh, we're poor. We don't have a lot. This would be a great hardship on us financially. You know what? Let's just not do this trip. Or even he could say, you know, better yet, it's not just I'm worried about money, but babe, I'm worried about you too. You're pregnant after all. Uh, And, you know, I hear traveling with uh, pregnant women is hard even on the woman, uh, let alone the man traveling with them. I didn't have my own kids. This is 
just what I hear. Um, but here it is, somewhere about an 85-mile journey, um, not in the side of a comfy seat of an SUV, but on probably the back of a donkey and walking a lot, I mean, in a dry, hot, dusty place. Um, this, he could easily turn and say, you know what, you're pregnant, let's just not do this. Um, and he could probably get away with it, in all honesty, because he could say, you know what, I'm not a simple, I'm not an important man, I'm not a wealthy man, I'm rather, I'm just kind of a simple poor man, and nobody's really going to notice me being left off the list, especially at a national level, nobody's going to know. And so Joseph, I think, has plenty of reason of why he wouldn't participate in this, but I think Joseph does what uh, Daniel did and what is right, that as long as he could look at the law of the land and say, can I obey that? and still obey the law of my God, then the answer is yes, that he's going to do both those things. And this is what Daniel, this is what Joseph, the upright man, does, uh, is he obeys the law of the land in following his God. And this reminds us again of Daniel. Now we have these characters, who, these kings who think that it's their will, whose God's will is sovereign over that, and then who's the instrument who gets to be a part of it? The upright man. Uh, who's listening to both the law of the land and the law of God. And this is, I think, an interesting thing that I would have missed, again, from Joseph if I wasn't studying Daniel. And there's a third accomplishment that he ends with. Um, the third accomplishment, after he's established uh, Jesus as a human figure, now he's establishing uh, Jesus as a right Messiah. And then at the establishment of Christ as the Messiah, he establishes his humble origins, his lowly beginnings. Not a grandeur of what he would be expecting, but something far from it. This is going to be a theme Luke will continue with, is he'll continue here highlighting uh, Jesus' connection to the poor and their receipt of him, and also the ultimate rejection of Jesus by those who don't receive him. This is found even here. Look down, verse 6. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Now, I kind of want to give Luke a hard time here um, because we have, we have all this buildup. We have all this detail about travel. We have all this detail about why and what they're doing, um, all leading up to this birth. And then what does he just tell us about this birth? Well, the time came. It happened. Moving on. And it's like, I want to ask more. I only, I'm always just curious about this. I'm like, it's, what, when did this happen first off? I mean, is this, they arrived in, uh, now arrived in Bethlehem, and they're there for several days, and then it gives birth? That could happen in this passage. Is this like an immediate thing? Is this like the hardships of, of the travel set her into a premature labor, and then now she's, they're just barely skating in and then giving birth? Are there a bunch of animals running around in this stable with them? I mean, like, I'm truly fascinated by a lot more about these, about the details of her birth, especially in a society where the mortality rate of infants and uh, the maternal mortality rate during pregnancy was almost astronomically high compared to ours today. Um, was this a precarious thing? Was this any spiritual warfare? Chris and I years ago dreamed about what that warfare would look like. Is this Mary with a huge spiritual dragon at her feet waiting to devour this baby the moment it comes out with all these massive spiritual forces standing guard and at the moment of birth God comes in and bam brightness shines they're all kicked out and then Messiah enters the world I, I, I don't know I'm again a little bit want to be frustrated at Luke and then I'm also like but Luke's a dude I'm a dude I kind of get it this is what I get in trouble with every time I talk to my wife about somebody giving a birth they're like well what how much did it weigh what was the situation so I was like it's born I know that so I can't give Luke such a hard time here. 
But again, I think what is really, really interesting is not necessarily what happens in the birth, but then the details specifically that I came across in what we are told after his birth. Um, again, this is the establishment of Jesus as uh, a humble, um, a humble origin coming into the world. Um, because the first thing that she does, she wraps him in cloths and she puts him, the second thing, she puts him in a manger. This practice of wrapping with cloths and this work that, word that's used here uh, in the Greek is the same word for two practices um, that the Jewish people were very, very common. It's very, very common at the time for them to wrap their babies with their arms restricted. This is why we say swaddle, um, just to, even though the word just means wrappings. And they wrap their babies um, to, to soothe them right after birth. The other time they take strips of linen and wrap a body in a tradition is at the time of death. And this is the same thing we saw for Jesus. And I don't think Luke is, is missing that point. I think Luke is making clear and presenting that, is that this is a, a foreshadowing of the humble Jesus who has come with a purpose, also highlighting and looking forward to potentially his death one day. Um, and maybe we'll come back to this when we get to Mark in the Advent. Maybe it'll be a good time then we could look at Jesus as one who is born to die, I think would be a fitting message even there. Um, but again, we get him wrapped up, and we get him in this, this figurative foreshadowing place, and then we get him put in a manger, not a typical place, you would imagine, just for a baby, let alone a king, let alone a savior, a messiah, one who's come from God. This should be an inappropriate place if it was on our standards, but that's not what God chooses to reveal. God's story is always much different of our story. And thus, Jesus is laid in a manger. Now, I do want to make a small comment because uh, I feel bad for the guy in history um, because a lot of people blame Jesus being in a manger uh, on the innkeeper, the poor innkeeper, and saying it was all his fault uh, for kicking them out, not accepting them in, and thus Jesus has to be born in a stable. Um, that's not actually how Luke portrays this. The, it's, it's not, the innkeeper's not in doubt here. Um, and in fact, may not actually even be an innkeeper, which we can get into in a second. It was actually, I think, a song in the 90s that really popularized um, kind of vilifying this innkeeper. Um, but this word that's used for there's no room in the inn, this word inn could also mean guest room. Um, and whereas there is a specific Greek word um, that is only used for rooms in an inn, in a hostel, in a hotel, um, this one's not inappropriately used. It could be used as that, but it also is commonly used just for a guest room, as in within their family. Um, it may even be that this is Joseph going back to his family's house, uh, the, the relatives he still has there, which would be appropriately, appropriate and normal of the time, and ask them for a place to stay. And they're the ones who have to say, there's no room here. We have a bunch of other uh, guests. This may actually be even more nefarious than that, as I heard um, a Jewish man in Israel actually present this notion that I had never thought of before. This may be Joseph's own family shunning him, telling him, there's no room for you in our guest house because you're betrothed to somebody who's pregnant. I mean, that could be at worst. Or then merely again, it, it, this is unknown, this isn't here in the text, it may be a positive connotation on the innkeeper. It may be that they get to the innkeeper, he's truly sold all his rooms, he knows all the other hotels don't have anywhere to stay, and he says, you know what, I'll still take care of you. I'll give you the best thing I got. I'll clean up this stable, I'll put a cot in there, I'll, I'll even clean out a manger so you can have a place to lay the baby. I'll take care of you. I'm sorry it couldn't be more. 
maybe that's the case. Either way, the innkeeper, I don't think, is, is a bad guy here. Um, and the, the quote that I came across in a commentary was a guy, from a guy named Tom Constable um, that led me, started down this path. And so I wanted to share his thoughts because um, a lot more can sink than mine. The so-called innkeeper has become a villain figure in the Christmas story, but Luke did not present him as such. The writer's contrast was between the royal birthplace that the son of David deserved and the humble one that he received. The exclusion from human society anticipated the rejection that he would continue to experience throughout his ministry. And so Luke done here is Luke is, is, is highlighting or establishing Jesus' humble origins. And after he's done, after he's put him into history, after he's established him qualified as Messiah, and after he presents this crazy, crazy different story about him not receiving the way that we think he should be received, but the way he's received in humble beginnings, he then goes on to compound that by entering, introducing us to these humble witnesses, these shepherds, um, because that's when we move into the next section uh, in verse 8. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And the question emerges, why are shepherds chosen as a witness? Um, and Chris mentioned this in last week's sermon when he was talking about the Lamb of, Lamb of God. Um, because there, there is this idea, and I actually think it's a beautiful idea, um, and would really love for it uh, to be a right idea. There's this idea um, that really, according to the teachings of the Mishnah, the Jewish oral traditions written down, um, the situation of when and why uh, shepherds would be out into the fields overnight, um, and particularly with the ties of what it is to for the uh, raising of the sheep that would be prepared in, for the Passover, um, that these may be, these shepherds may be the very ones uh, who are raising the sheep that in a couple months are going to be crucified in the Passover. And if anybody could tell the difference between a lamb worthy of temple sacrifice uh, and one not, that it would be these shepherds. And maybe these shepherds are invited in uh, as a little nod of the hat to qualify Jesus as a worthy lamb of God, worthy to be sacrificed. And if that's the case, I think, it's, I think, it, would be, I think it would be beautiful. Um, but I, I, Leon Morris, I think, says it of like, while this may be a possibility, um, there, it isn't a certainty. We don't really, we can't verify that in, in, in forms. And so I think we just leave this one up to, we'll get to heaven, we'll ask, and God may be, oh yeah, yeah, I did that. Uh, I snuck that one in on you. Oh, and by the way, here's five more I snuck in on you on this story. Like, that, that may truly be how this plays out. But one of the reasons why I don't gravitate towards that first is because I think Luke, again, is highlighting not these shepherds as the appropriate witness, the one we would choose, all right? We would have not chosen the manger. We would have not chosen the shepherds because the shepherds at the time wasn't a position that was highly praised. Um, in fact, they were looked down upon. Um, they were rather lowly. Uh, their work put them un as unclean in the temple, and so their status then diminished over the years. Um, insofar, uh, by the 400s, and they actually criminalized shepherds um, in uh, the rabbinical teachings because they allowed their sheep to graze on other people's lands, other people's properties. And so they were very, very uh, discredited even later. Um, I, I think it's just more of thinking at this time, if you were to choose anybody to be the herald, to be the witness, I mean, you could choose a king, you could choose a wealthy person. I, what I get at is you wouldn't choose a shepherd, and that's who's, what's chosen here. Daryl Bach puts it as this in his commentary, there are no more normal Joes in ancient culture than the shepherds. But here's what they represent. They represent the lowly and the humble who respond to God's message. And so this is where we end up so far, is we have God using the plans of these rulers 
orchestrating it also through the upright deeds of an individual, um, setting Jesus in this lowly um, response to the glory he would deserve, and then choosing a witness who also resembles those who accept him in his humble condition as they humble themselves. And we see their humbling um, and the, as they are experience the glory of God put before them through this angel. And they respond just as we always see whenever we run into angels. Verse 9, an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with what? Fear. Great fear. They rightly see this is not a presence and a glory I as a sinner should be standing in, so they are afraid. And then what the angels always have to do, verse 10, and the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I, hear, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people, for unto you, born this day in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord, and this will be a sign for you. You will find the baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. I, I have to put my sho- myself in the shoes of the shepherd here, because I think this would be a, I think the shepherds would feel the discourse we just talked about. They would have these angels show up, they would be comforted by them, and then they would be told, I have good news, great joy, not just for you, for all people, the Savior, not just the Savior, Christ the Lord, this is who is born today. And let's hear this message and be like, wow, fantastic. And then the angel said, now let me tell you how you'll know it's true. That's what it really means when it's saying, um, and this will be a sign for you. How you'll know this great message is true is you'll find him, baby, wrapped in swallowing clothes, lying in a manger. At this point, I imagine the shepherds scratching their head and being like, wait, what? Like, what's this? This is a disconnect. That's not where... That's not where the Savior, the Christ, should be. They would be experiencing what we're only partially scratching at, at a much deeper, deeper level. And I, I almost imagine in their uncertainty, this is why God shows up and continues in 13, and suddenly there with, all the, with the angels, a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. It's like if there's any doubt uh, that, this was, that this witness from this angel was reliable, now the angels show up in all, their, uh, in all their multitude and they actually share with him the second time actually only in Scripture that were shared with a human the content of angelic worship, what the angels are worshiping. The only other time it happens, happens back in Isaiah 6, and that's it in Scripture. We hear a lot about angels worshiping and even what they're worshiping about, especially when we get to Revelation, but the actual content of the worship uh, is now revealed towards these lowly shepherds, these humble men, and I think they see, yes, this clearly, this sign, how it will prove to us will be there will be this, this, this uh, baby wrapped in uh, uh, linen and put in a manger. And I kind of also think, and that's not going to be too hard to find because there's probably not a lot of babies in mangers right now. So they go, they go on. Now, you maybe also pause just like I always pause um, because you're like, hang on a minute. Wait, when Linus was talking, he said it's, it's peace and goodwill towards men. And for those of y'all who grew up in churches like me where we read a lot from the uh, King James Version, I did a lot of my early Bible uh, memory in that, that is exactly what it is. And almost every time I get to this, I kind of have this like, catch where I have to stop myself and not say, and goodwill to men, um, because I think this is, a, this is an outdated translation. Uh, most all modern translations want to more accurately uh, communicate this. In fact, in the NIV, it says, peace to men on whom his favor rests, and the NASB, which is very similar to the ESV, um, it puts on earth peace amongst men with whom he is pleased. Um, what this is, is this is the extension of God's favor. He's he is not saying it's not man's merit to earn. This is a peace I give as my favor 
to man. You experience God's favor if you accept my peace. A former pastor of mine summarized it uh, as this. He said, a heart bent on glorifying God is a heart postured to receive his peace. Is that when God is making clear, he's the one giving and he's the one who is able to offer and we are only the ones who are able to receive. So this is where I want to stop and really start the first part of a two-part journey of my own journey and how we finish this. Because again, like I said, I had a hard time at the end um, when we'll get to these three responses of these characters towards this message. And what I had to do is I almost had to go back and I had to remind myself of the power of the peace of the gospel, the power of the gospel. And I think it was helpful for me to do that first, then consider the right response. Because again, if I just considered the response off the familiarity of the story, I found myself not not quite rising up to what at least it was trying to encourage out of me. And so in that conviction, again, I'm not presenting it as I got it right. I'm just hopefully sharing what helped me a little bit. And so what I want to do first, before we look at the three responses, I want to look at three relationships that are restored by the peace of the gospel. The first one is the one that I always thought of, and probably the only one I thought of for the longest amount of time, um, is that, that the gospel restores our peace with God, the peace between man and God, that God is perfect, man was fallen, and man couldn't do anything about it, and so only God in the gospel could restore that peace. This is why Romans 5.1 says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, faith being the pivotal act here of believing, we have peace with God. Because of our faith, we receive peace from God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And again, when I think about it, as I think about that idea of who on earth could put right peace with God, that I can't find in my own hands. That I don't believe any man can. And so something much more powerful than any accomplishment man can do, which is something that only God could do, and that's something only apparently he did. That's how powerful. It takes a powerful peace to establish uh, a right relationship with God. But it's not just peace with God. It's also um, we get a peace with ourselves. Um, we have the, an inward peace, a peace internally with ourselves that we can do. Um, look, Paul wrote it in Philippians 4, 5, and 6, and this was kind of fun because it wasn't on the video, but before Jeff baptized Aiden, this is the verse Aiden chose. Um, it says, Do not be anxious about anything. Anxiousness being the, probably the opposite state of peace. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplications, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And what happens when you cast your anxiety on God? He exchanges it. He takes it away and he gives something different. And he says, and there, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your mind in Christ Jesus. This is, again, another statement of a powerful promise of the peace that God can do even in our own lives. Because anybody know, if you yourself or you know somebody who struggles with anxiety, you know that they will tell you that anxiety is a powerful force. It can be a debilitator in life. It can truly uh, absorb them and consume them and direct them. That's the power anxiety can have over ourselves in our broken state. But there's one who can put that right not ourselves, one who can take all that away and exchange that anxiety for peace, and that is God. This is the power, again, of the gospel, the peace of God, something we we can't even fully understand. And then the third piece I wanted to consider was the peace with the relationship of others. 
This is actually why in uh, Romans 12, uh, he commends us, if so possible, with ourselves to be at peace with everybody. We actually have the ability to be at peace because of the acceptance of the gospel. Moreover, in Isaiah 9, um, we get that through the Messiah, through Christ, he will put all nations at peace, all nations of men at peace. This is something he'll accomplish only through his gospel. And as I reflect on this, and I reflect on the power of a gospel that can put nations at peace, and I quickly jotted down some of that I was thinking of. I mean, stop. Look at Syria. Look at what's going on in Yemen. Look at Libya. Look at Burundi. Look at Palestine. There is no looking at those situations where I have any confidence that man will, will achieve peace there. It just isn't going to happen. But this is what the peace of God offers, is he has not only a peace with him, a peace with ourselves, but also a peace between the nations. This is a powerful thing, and this is what he offers us. And so I do, before I move on into the other responses of peace, I want to probably start with the most important response that's not actually on the list of three, um, which is actually your personal response of the gospel. Have you considered this gospel? Have you considered this powerful peace offered to you? And have you partaken through faith and in inviting Jesus as the Lord and Savior of your life? And I would say, if you haven't done that this Christmas season, don't miss in the Advent the best Christmas gift ever offered to you, which is the peace of God. And whether you've done that now for the first time or whether you uh, have done that before, I do want to continue and say there, are, there is an appropriate response to peace this piece that's offered in this story that I know I felt really convicted by. And so I want to share those as we close our time together. Let's wrap up um, the, the shepherd's story and catch up to these responses. Verse 15, when the angel went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that had happened, which the Lord had made known to us. And they went with haste and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told to them concerning this, to this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. Everybody who hears this gospel message, this birth of Christ, all who hears the shepherds telling of the angelic message, it leads them to wonder. This word wonder means to be amazed, to be awestruck. One, one word study I liked it. It was po very poetic. He actually put it as to be astonished out of one's senses. I like that. Does the gospel astonish you out of your senses? And when I think about it, I th when I think about wonder, honestly, I think, I think our children get this. I, th I thought first of my children. They get wonder. They experience life and are constantly surprised by something that happens, and they wonder at it. They're amazed at it. Um, but there's something about that I related to, and I think you all do too, about just time and age and knowledge and developing. It's like that childish wonder begins to diminish in us somehow, right? And that's what I found with this first command when I was looking at this very familiar passage. I didn't find it in this awestruck wonder that I knew I should have. And that wasn't about the lack of wonder in the message. That was a lack of wonder in my heart. I think this was the first thing that I wanted to challenge myself and even encourage y'all during this Advent season, what are the things that do lead you to wonder? And how can you incorporate those things um, along with texts like this uh, to bring yourself to the point of right amazement, to be struck out of your senses in wonder um, of the gospel message? 
for me, I know I mostly hit those things. Uh, I come to places of wonder of God through His creation. Um, I'm kind of more of the mountains and valley, hills and lowlands type guy, not so much the ocean and the sea. But uh, again, even that, all of it is where I get struck. And so I know I will want to make sure to spend some significant time in God's, in a beautiful place of God's nature to try to encourage this more out of me, this idea of a wonder. That's the first response. And then we get to verse 19 and we see a second response. And this one comes from Mary. Verse 19, but Mary treasured up all these things pondering them in her heart. When the Bible uses the word, this word treasured up, it usually has one of two meanings, either one, to preserve or keep safe, or the other, which I think is more appropriate here, um, which is to store something up in your mind and not forget it. I think this is why we have the storing of the treasure, treasuring these things and then pondering on them. And this is what Daniel did when the message was revealed to him. He considered, he pondered, he went to God's word, and he, he ingested it over and over. He took time, and he pondered it. He spent significant time on it. And this is radically countercultural to the culture message given to us today, right? Of instant gratification, where you move from one acceptance of pleasure onto the next, onto the next, onto the next, and you don't just stop and ponder and wonder about it and give it a significant time. I mean, this isn't like Mary in our culture is like, hey, cool, birth of Jesus, quick selfie, post on Instagram, now continue going on my feed. Next gratification, next gratification, right? But this, this Mary stops and she wonders, she ponders over these things. And I think this is what we're going to have to do again in this Advent season. I would encourage you, despite all the busyness, all the distraction, all those instant gratifications that are coming your way, I encourage you, take time to ponder over this, to wonder at it and to ponder over it and treasure it in your heart. And then hopefully that will lead you to what we can conclude with this last response found in verse 20. And when the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them, What the shepherds then last response with all of this is they can't help on the way of returning to do two things, glorifying God and praising God. And I do hope again in this Advent season you'll find times to accomplish all of this, to sit in wonder and awestruck perplexity about the intricacy of the gospel message and how it has been given to you. to not just stand amazed by it, but to, to dwell on it, to treasure that up, to ponder on it, and then to let those things lead you into a right response of worship. Worship meaning simply to speak highly of God, to give Him the glory He has received.